So pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you always for your word from the scriptures. I pray this morning that you'd open our hearts uh, as we look at your word and uh, your spirit would move in me as I, as I teach it and move in the hearts of everyone gathered here. Um, I confess before you that there's, uh, there's nothing that I can bring to the table this morning uh, apart from your grace and apart from your power. And so I, I pray that, that your spirit would move and work uh, and lead me to rightly divide the word this morning so that everybody that hears it, myself included, um, would be convicted um, and it be more and more conformed into the image of your son. So help me speak with clarity uh, and help me uh, do justice uh, the word of the Lord this morning uh, by your grace and by the power of your spirit. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've, uh, uh, we're, we're about halfway through this series, maybe a little more. We've got a few weeks left, counting Good Friday. And um, last week, you may remember that, that John preached uh, uh, a message that very much, I think, highlighted Jesus' humanity um, uh, in regard to his exchange with John and his mother Mary on the cross as to what would happen after, after he died, who would take care of Mary. Um, and this week, we're going to be looking at another exchange that I think highlights the other nature fully present in the person of Jesus, right? Because we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So last week, we saw something that I think was a very human moment. Uh, and, and this week, um, we're going to see something that I, that I think is, is a very divine moment. Um, so when we talk about Jesus and Christianity, we always have to highlight those two natures. And we have to be clear when we talk about it um, that, that they coexist completely in Jesus all the time. Um, it's not like sometimes he's human, sometimes he's divine. No, he's always human and he's always divine. Fully God, fully man, not half God, not half man. Um, and so setting the scene, we have to remember that Jesus is in the midst of very real human suffering. Uh, in his physical body, and he never ceases to also be fully divine in those moments. And we'll see the implications of that today in the passage. So turn your Bibles with me to Luke 23. Um, we're going to be in verses 39 through 43. And I'm going to go and read the whole passage, and then we'll, um, we'll dive in. And so this is, this is picking up on the cross. Um, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for, of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus said, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Word of the Lord. So, um, Jesus' statement that we're going to look at, that truly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise, is obviously that's the statement that we're going to be unpacking today. But there's a lot there in that statement, and we, we really have to get into the text, the context before it, and, and help us kind of remember the story up to this point before we dive into Jesus' statement and its implications. So, um, at this point, we, we all know, if you grew up in the church at all, that, that Jesus has been wrongly condemned uh, and afflicted. All the gospel accounts tell us that the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers have mocked him uh, uh, as uh, he was being tortured. 
Um, and at this point, he has experienced um, 39 lashes with a Roman flagrum. Uh, that's a lot like the British, like cat of nine tails that you would see, you know, in you know movies and stuff. But the but the the tails are longer, and they had woven into them like ball bearings and pieces of bone. They were they were designed to create huge contusions. The ball bearings were, uh, which would draw the blood up to the surface, and the bone was designed to rip and lacerate flesh, uh, causing a lot of bleeding. Um, something uh, that I can't even imagine what the, the pain would be like. And after this, then he was forced to carry a cross. Uh, the ultimate instrument of his own death, he was forced to carry that uphill to the outskirts of the city until he couldn't anymore, and somebody else had to finish. Um, then he was nailed to that cross, threw his hands and feet, and hung there to die of suffocation, exposure, thirst, and, of course, bleeding from all of his wounds. Um, the fact that he says anything coherent to anyone is absolutely incredible. Um, I think if most of us were there, we'd just be quiet and, and try not to die as quickly as we were dying. Um, but we're met with such a gracious statement in, in, in these words uh, that I, I truly believe it's a, it's a testimony to who Jesus really was and is. So we're going we're gonna to look at the context uh, for this section, beginning in verse 39. Again, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? And right out of the gate we know uh, that we have more than one criminal who's being hanged on the cross next to Jesus. There's, there's more than one of these men, but, but one is, is speaking here. So if we backtrack to Luke 23, 32 and 33, so just a few verses back, we notice that it says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were, they, uh, were uh, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Matthew's account has this to say about the criminals. So it says, So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers, this is key, verse 44, even though, even though Matthew used the word robbers, obviously it's the same criminals that Luke is talking about, just a different word. Uh, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So now this is obviously Luke's account has to pick up sometime after this because here only one of them is, is continuing to do that and one of them has significantly changed his tune. Um, so, uh, verse, verse 40 gives us uh, a window into that. It's, uh, it says, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Uh, somewhere in the midst of all the jeers, all of the mocking, this criminal had, had changed his entire outlook on, on who Jesus was. And uh, it, it becomes apparent to him what's really happening. Uh, what he's witnessing is not some sort of charlatan uh, that, the, that the Jews are punishing or some sort of troublemaker or insurrectionist trying to take over uh, Israel, um, um, just being taught a lesson by, by the Romans, right? It, it's the crucifixion of his Messiah. This man's a Jew, 
and he comes to believe in who Jesus really was. When I was in seventh grade, uh, I went through like a bad season. Um, I was already a believer, but I fell in with a bad crowd. And, you know, Proverbs tells us bad company corrupts good character. Uh, and uh, I uh, was just friends with some guys who were jerks. Not any other way to put that. I think we were all insecure. We were in junior high, you know, and nobody was really cool. No offense, junior hires that are in here. I promise you're, you, y'all are different. Um, but. We, we were all ribbing each other and stuff just, just to make us feel maybe like we were less insecure. But we were all really insecure, and me even more so, because I was a believer and I knew it was wrong, but I was doing it anyway. Uh, and there was one kid in particular that, that um, we made fun of. Uh, his, his name was Tom. And he wasn't really any more awkward than us, but we made fun of his hair, we made fun of his shoes, we made fun of the way that he talked, made fun of the way that he looked. Um, and I and I never really instigated it because I knew it wasn't right, but I would definitely join in. And uh, something I really still regret to this day. Don't be mean, kids. Um, and um, I'm a young believer, still new to Christianity, but there's always just this kind of check in my spirit. I know what I'm doing is, is not a good idea. And then something really changes because I realize that Tom is also a Christian. I don't really remember how I learned that, I don't know if another friend told me or if I saw him at some Christian thing at the school. But at that point, when I realized who Tom was, I was like, okay, that's, just, that's it. I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. I have to, I have to change the way that I'm acting around, around Tom. Um, and I wish I could tell you that I like stood up to my other two friends and was like, hey, you know, I, I don't really remember doing that. I don't even really know if I apologized. I think I just stopped. If I did apologize, I think it was sometime later, like maybe even, you know, the next year when I was more serious about my faith. And I was just like, hey, man, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Um, but the point was, is I, I stopped making fun of him and my attitude changed because I, I realized who he was. And I really do think that the, the same thing has happened here. Um, one of the robbers still doesn't believe in who Jesus is, but one of them's heart has completely changed because he's realized the identity of who he was just mocking. And uh, his defense of Jesus continues in, in verse 41. Uh, he says, so he's talked about the fact that, that just because they're under the same sentence, you know, doesn't mean we should, should mock them. And then he's talking about the sentence. He says, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So essentially, um, he's saying just because we're all in the same boat doesn't mean that you can mock this guy. Don't you know who he is? We're up here because we're criminals. We deserve what we're getting, but he didn't do anything. He's blameless. In verse 42, he says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that last statement's meaning might kind of seem elusive to us at, uh, at first glance, but this is a plea for salvation. It's not often the way that we were, you know, taught to, to when we were taught to trust in Jesus. They say things like trust Christ, ask Jesus in your heart. It's kind of a weird one, but we say it. Um, we say believe in Jesus. We don't typically say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Um, but given the messianic implications of that statement, um, it's hard to, to treat it any other way but as a plea for salvation. And so let's, let's acknowledge what, what has led to this statement. So 
Uh, it begins in verse 40 and 41, see, because he acknowledges God's judgment over sin. You know, he sees, ver, you know, verse 40, he says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So he's, he's acknowledging that, that, that sin has consequences. And then he's acknowledging in, in 41 his own sinfulness, and we're, we're justly receiving punishment for our sins. We, we did something wrong, and what's being given to us is justice being, being merited out. But then he acknowledges Jesus' blamelessness, his sinlessness. He says, this man hasn't done anything wrong, and he's under the, the same sentence as us. That's what we have to do when we trust Jesus. We have to acknowledge that we're under God's judgment. We have to acknowledge that we're sinful. And we have to acknowledge that Jesus wasn't. And that he's dying under the, the, the same sentence that we should be dying from. That is what this man is doing. And so he doesn't say, come into my heart, Jesus, because that would be weird. Um, but he leans, he leans over and, and he says, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. Why would he do that? Why would he all of a sudden completely change and and trust? I think it's because if we look at verse 34, Jesus says about the people crucifying him and torturing him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There's no way that that this thief didn't hear that. There's no way that this thief didn't connect those dots and say, if these people can really be forgiven, then surely I can be. These people are the ones that are, that are punishing a blameless man. Maybe I can be forgiven. And so he acknowledges Jesus' lordship. He acknowledges the kingdom. Remember, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is acknowledging Jesus as king, is it not? And he acknowledges his need for salvation. That can only come from Jesus because he's not asking the Father. He's asking Jesus right there. He says, remember me. Remember me. And now finally we arrive at the statement uh, that Jesus makes. His response to this plea from this dying man. Verse 43. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So that expression, if you've read the Bible at all, you've probably encountered it in the words of Jesus, this truly I say to you. Um, it's, it's found often singularly as it is here, where it's just kind of a truly. But in the Gospel of John, truly, truly, I say to you. Or if you read King James growing up, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Or NIV, maybe it's I tell you the truth. Um, or truly, I tell you the truth. Um, it's used over 70 times. Uh, in the Gospels, by by Jesus. And every time that he's saying it, he really wants you to listen to what's coming next. The Greek word for truly is amen. Um, the, it has two main uses in the New Testament. Number one uh, is uh, is the way that we all know it. Uh, uh, they uh, um, It just means like a strong affirmation of, of what's just been said. Um, so you're saying, so be it, let it be so. Truly, it has been said. Um, and that, that's what we transliterate into our English, amen. So when you pray a prayer and you say amen, you, you're, you're saying, so be it. May it be so. Let that, let that be the case. Um, the second use is what's called an asseverative particle. Yeah, that's your $10 word for the morning. Uh, 
And it, um, it's a solemn declaration. Uh, and it always comes with the other Greek word, lego, which means I say. It's the verb for I say. So you have, truly, I say, and you know who says that? Only Jesus. Nobody else in the Bible says that. So when it's used this way, it is unique to Jesus. Uh, and Jesus himself, right, he's not actually speaking Greek when he's saying it. It's just being written down in Greek. So he would have been saying the Hebrew or Aramaic word, amen, which, again, just transliterated, right? We just keep kind of copying it over. And traditionally, it was not used that way in Judaism either. They would have said it at the end to confirm what had just been said. Um, but Jesus always used it in this sense with this word I say, lego, to stress what follows. So it introduces it, and it stresses its importance. And in context, that obviously means that Jesus wants the thief to take what he's saying to the bank. Um, He's not merely saying, believe me, this is true. He's actually saying, I know this is true firsthand. Since many of these comments are on heavenly, you know, spiritual issues, Jesus' use of truly, truly, verily, verily, however you want to say it, is part of his consistent claim of his divinity. Like I said, this is, this is highlighting this nature that is present in Jesus. Um, Jesus is not merely aware of these truths and imparting them. He is the one who authored them. He's the one who originated them. So when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, or truly I say to you, he's saying, this is really true. Um, it's hard for us to grasp that when we just read it in the English, but that's, that's the meaning behind it. There is a divine statement that's coming. And so um, the phrase that follows is, today you will be with me in paradise. Seems simple enough, um, but there are two words that kind of bookend this that the people have struggled with as they've tried to interpret this text and, and interpret it, they have, widely. Um, so first you have the word today. But there's no special nuance in the Greek that makes us think that we would use any other word than today. It, it means today. But some commentators want to stress that the only other two times where Jesus says today in Luke, it has more of a sense of like inaugurating something, like kicking it off. Um, in, in Luke 4, he, he's reading the scroll in Isaiah, and then he, he says Today, Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And some of the things that he's spoken spoken about are actually things that will happen in the second coming. And so they go, oh, well, today this will happen. Um, So some folks say that this today is more like that one, that he's he's not really going to be with him today in paradise, but ultimately that's where the thief and Jesus will end up. I don't think that's right, though. to the criminal's temporal but vague when, remember me when, that's his plea. Remember me when, that's a temporal word. He's saying, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus answers and says, I tell you the truth, or truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So he answers the vague plea with a specific temporal statement. Today, today you will be with me. So the second word, uh, is paradise, uh, and th- that word is more vague in, in its biblical usage. Uh, it doesn't occur a lot, um, and uh, in the Greek it's just paradiso, so that's not helpful. It just tells you where we got our word. Um, but uh, it, uh, it can literally mean like a garden-like paradise, like Garden of Eden, uh, or it can mean a place of eternal rest and blessedness, like heaven, 
Um, in the New Testament, it, it, it occurs only here. Paul describing his vision in 2 Corinthians and in Revelation 2. So Paul's vision, he says, I was caught up into the third heaven. I was caught up into paradise. Third heaven, that third always freaks everybody out. But Paul is a Jew, and so he's thinking, first heaven is like where birds are, and I can see it. And second heaven is where the sun is and the stars. And third heaven is the realm that I can't see. That's what he's talking about. So put that in your back pocket. And you're like, I know what third heaven means. It just means heaven. Means heaven, but we're not Jews, so we lose some of that. Um, so he's talking about heaven there. In Revelation, same thing. Paradise, the mention in Revelation 2 very much sounds like heaven as we would understand it. So two out of three, heaven, what's the deal? Why does that sound controversy at all? I'm sure it just means heaven. Well, um, there's a doctrine in the early church based on some other New Testament passages that, that seem on the surface to come into conflict with the notion that Jesus would have gone straight to heaven after he suffered on the cross and, and, and died. Did anybody grow up in a more liturgical stream of the faith where you said the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born on the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He, yeah, everybody like mumbles two different things, right? He descended into hell. He ascended into heaven. Some versions have he descended into hell. Some only have the ascended thing. If you grew up Methodist, you just say ascended. You're like, that part's weird. We're not going to say it. Uh, and to be fair, the, to, to, uh, to in the plus column for the Methodists, the, the, the original creed, the oldest one that we have record of, doesn't have that line in there. But by the time it was kind of parsed out across the whole church and, and, and you know, adopted as a creed, it, it had been added. So, but we're a Bible church, not a creed church, Evan, so why does that matter? Well, the Apostles' Creed is supposed to be, right, obviously the Apostles didn't write it, but it's supposed to be a synthesis of the Apostles' teaching, right, which is, which is here. And it, the question then is, well, did the Apostles teach it? Did anybody say that? Was there, was there a, a passage of Scripture that seems to indicate that? And there is one in in first peter written by the apostle peter chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 that might indicate something like that happened and says for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but being made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison so Though people debate what actually happened during this kind of doctrine of descent, we do have a passage that seems to indicate something did happen after Jesus died, and he went to a prison. Don't think heaven has any prisons in it. So we're forced to look at what else we know of doctrinally that might include a prison or a place of punishment, and that would be something like hell. Uh, but... Um, that goes, well, then how are we saying today you'll be with me in paradise if Jesus has to go somewhere else first and maybe do something else, like preach to these spirits in prison, whatever that might mean. Well, some people think that paradise maybe doesn't mean the Christian heaven that ultimately we would all go to, um, but perhaps the Jewish place of rest that is mentioned by Jesus. It's called Abraham's bosom, and you can find that in Luke 16. We're not going to read the whole passage, but you can, if you want to turn there, um, there's the, the relevant verses are, are on the screen. 
Um, and so it's talking about a poor man and a rich man, one whom was righteous, one whom was not. It says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The Greek word for side there is bosom. They're translating in the ESV's side, although Abraham's bosom might not be just right next to Abraham, but might actually kind of figuratively be a language for a place where Abraham and the other patriarchs are. And so the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Lazarus is the, is the poor man. So Hades is the Greek word for underworld. They don't mean the ancient Greek mythology underworld. When they're writing this, they're writing in Greek, so they're just using the same word. But they do possess certain similarities. You'll notice that the rich man can still see the righteous. So like the one that you would read about in Greek myth, that apparently the Jewish underworld, which in Hebrew would be called Sheol, not Hades as it is in Greek, has two sides to it. It has a righteous side, which is Abraham's bosom. You're with the patriarch. You're awaiting the, the kingdom of, of God. And a torment side, not unlike what will ultimately be hell, where there seems to be fire, and there's a great gulf between them. So... Uh, that, that, the Greek word for that is called Tartarus, and it appears once in our scriptures in Second Peter. So there is reference to some of these things by the apostles. And so we're left with um, kind of an implication or maybe a harmonization technique that might be that maybe Jesus went not to heaven, but to the Jewish underworld, Sheol slash Hades, to preach two spirits in prison. Um, probably a message of victory, in case you're like wondering what that's about. It's probably a message of victory over, over death on that Tartarus side, but also crossed Abraham's, uh, crossed to Abraham's bosom with the thief. Um, so that's like your harmonization if you want to go there. Uh, we can't know for sure. We re- there's really not enough biblical evidence to, to support that view or the view that I think is right, which is that that's kind of weird. Um, so there's a, there's a couple reasons why I don't think that's likely. Um, number one, Luke uses Abraham's bosom to refer to the Jewish place of rest just seven chapters earlier, right? There's still Luke writing both, both stories here. Um, and so Luke, Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to use language and to use terms, right? And he doesn't use the same one to describe these things. I think that's, that's significant. Um, number two, uh, the, the plea is in reference to Jesus' kingdom, Right? He says, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Sheol, Hades, is not really a kingdom. It's a place of rest and waiting for the dead. Um, and so Jesus' answer being like, today you'll be with me in this place where we wait, doesn't have quite as much force uh, for a truly I say to you kind of statement. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to fit. And yeah, you'll be with me, and I got to wait, and I got to go preach to some spirit, and then we'll go to heaven. It'll be great. And it just doesn't doesn't seem right to me. Uh, number three, it makes Jesus' sacrifice on the cross seem unfinished when it's not. Right? Jesus says, it is finished. So the idea that this Jewish man who has trusted Christ and believed in everything that he needs to believe, he dies after Jesus has died. We know that from, from the scriptures. So where would he go? Where would he go? I think Jesus says he'd go to paradise and he would be with Jesus. I think it also misunderstands Jesus' personhood. I think this view, again, we're talking about the person of Jesus who is fully God and fully human. And so 
as crazy and mind-bending as that is for us to think about, it is possible for Jesus' human body to die and his divine nature, his, his spirit, because he does say, you know, Father, into your hands I, I commit my spirit as he's dying. It's possible for his spirit to ascend to heaven instantly with the redeemed thief. It's totally possible. And because Jesus is fully God and not in his human body at that time, because his body is dead and is going to be buried in the grave, it's possible for him to be with the thief in paradise, but also be elsewhere because God is omnipresent and Jesus is God. He is fully God. So Jesus could be in paradise with the father and with the thief and preaching to spirits in prison for whatever reason that is. That blows my mind, and I hope it blows yours too, and I hope it motivates you to realize the vastness of who our king is. So for my money, when Christ says truly today, he means truly today, heaven. And and this is why I say ultimately, what, what we're looking at this week is the profound deity of Christ on display. Now, a little bookend to that, I do want to read a a small quote from from John Calvin, because we can really get in the weeds over this paradise Sheol thing. Um, And John Calvin says it this way, and I agree. Um, He says, We ought not to enter into curious and subtle arguments about the place of paradise. Let us rest satisfied with knowing that those who are engrafted by faith into the body of Christ are partakers of that life, and thus enjoy after death a blessed and joyful rest until the perfect glory of heavenly life is fully manifested by the coming of Christ. Amen? So by way of application, I have, I have five things. If, you, if you're taking notes, these are, these are the five things that, that I want you to know about Jesus' statement. Uh, I do think that there are five things that truly today we can know. Number one, we can know that salvation is really by faith alone. This man does nothing to earn his forgiveness. He doesn't get baptized. He doesn't have communion. But he believes. And it's enough to pardon sin, to join Jesus in his kingdom. Baptism, communion, right doctrinal belief about important things, those are all important to the exercise of our faith. But none of those things save us. Salvation is by grace through faith, so that none of us can boast. Acts 31, uh, 631, 1631, excuse me. Paul and Silas are asked by the Philippian jailer, he says, what must I do to be saved? And I love it because they just say, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That's it. That's it. So number one, We know that salvation really is by faith alone. Number two is kind of an extension of the first point. We know that deathbed confessions are real. They happen. The first one that could happen does happen. The man trusted Christ moments before his own death on the cross. And we must always remember that it's not too late until it's too late. For our lost friends and our relatives near death, Always continue to pray for God's grace to be made evident to them. Share Christ with them so that they might believe and have life. The parable of the workers of the vineyard, Jesus tells us that everybody gets the same reward no matter when they come in to start working. So always, always share Christ with those that don't believe. 
always pray for them that they might trust, even at the last minute. There's always grace extended. Number three, we know that Jesus did not suffer for our sins in hell. This is kind of a weird doctrine, and not a lot of people believe it, but it gets in there sometimes because of that possibility of descent into hell. That the idea is that the cross was just the first part, but that ultimately he also had to suffer what it would be like for eternal punishment so that he could save us from that. But that has no record in Scripture. Nothing like that in recorded Scripture exists. There is no reference that would indicate um, that that's true. No support whatsoever. Jesus died on the cross once for all and said, it is finished. The sacrifice that he did on the cross is what saved us from our sins. That's what atoned for us. He didn't have to go to hell. He died a physical death so that we would not have to die a spiritual one. Any venture into Hades or hell uh, had nothing to do with the atonement for sin because it was finished on the cross. Number four, we know the doctrine of soul sleep is nowhere to be found here. If you're not familiar with that doctrine, certain, certain streams of Christianity or people that would confess to be Christian um, would say that when you die, you don't actually go to heaven. Your body just goes to sleep. Your soul goes to sleep and you just await for the final. You're just waiting for the final judgment where you'll rise from the grave and then you'll be with Jesus for eternity. Um, there's a reason why that doctrine exists. There are passages of scripture that seem to indicate that both Jesus and the apostle Paul, for instance, use the word asleep or sleeping to describe the state of death. And so people that believe this doctrine have taken it to the extreme of going, that's what actually happens. I don't think that's the case. I, 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 it's the, to me, it is the same thing as when we don't use the word dead to describe the state of a person. When we say they, they passed away, they, they went home, they are no longer with us, those sorts of things are a softer, more gentle way to talk about death because death feels wrong and is, we know from the Bible, unnatural, and we have a hard time coming to terms with it. And Jesus and Paul, Jesus being fully God and fully human, Paul being a human, understands that. And so he finds a softer way to say that. They're not dead, they're sleeping. Those that we love that are asleep, it, it, it simply is a softer, more gentle way of talking about death. It, it has no doctrinal or spiritual uh, component to it. It is strictly a pastoral one, if you, if you will. And lastly, number five, and this is important. We can know that God's grace to us in salvation does not alleviate our suffering in this life. The repentant thief on the cross still dies on a cross next to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, oh, now you're a believer. Let me call down my angels. Let me rescue you. There isn't a Roman, you know, centurion coming up saying, wait, 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 not this guy. We made a mistake. Not, nothing like that happens. He dies. He dies right after he believes. This flies in the face of the prosperity gospel that you often hear talked about, that once you trust Christ, you're entitled to all sorts of earthly blessings. You just need to pray for them. You just need to ask God for them. The fact is, nothing like that is promised in Scripture. 
We are entitled to eternal paradise with Jesus, though. And what a wonderful promise. More than enough. More than enough. But it doesn't mean that we won't deal with illness, disease. Doesn't mean we won't experience hardship. Doesn't mean you won't run over your foot with a scissor lift. And it doesn't mean that death won't come too soon for some who have trusted him. So back to my classmate in seventh grade, Tom. I didn't know the details, as I said, so I, I tried to track him down, and this being 2017, where do you go? You go to Facebook, right? And you find the school that they went to, and you find your friend, and I found him. Um, I wanted to first know if I got the story right. I didn't want to, you know, kind of like be vague and, you know, not, not tell it the way that I should. And I also wanted to legit kind of apologize to him. <laughs> uh, and I was right. He was a, most definitely a believer. I remembered that part right. He also got married recently in 2014, which was really cool to see photos of. But I also learned something else about Tom that I didn't know once I found him on Facebook. Tom died one year ago today, April 2nd, 2016. He was killed in a car accident. On the Facebook page, his mother wrote, I write this post with a very heavy heart. Heaven gained a wonderful soul today. Tom died in a car crash this morning. He was one of the kindest, most caring people I have ever met. His faith brought many to Christ, and now he is able to celebrate in heaven. Tom's mom could have easily said, and truly today, he is with Christ now in paradise. Death comes for us all. Sometimes it's expected. You see it coming. Often it's not. And there is only one way to know that you can be with heaven, in heaven with Jesus. You have to believe. You have to believe. If you have never done that, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've never believed in who he is and what he has done for you, you don't have life. But he who has the Son has life and has it abundantly. So if you've never done that this morning, I urge you to do it. Come talk to me or one of the pastors or one of the elders. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk about what's next. Because though that is what saves you, it's a beautiful journey and it's a beautiful life for those of us that get to be here and continue on. But ultimately, one day, we will be with him in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your, of your scripture this morning. Thank you that we can know for certain that nothing we can do will get us into heaven to be with our Lord. But it was all done for us that day on the cross. It is finished. The work of God has brought salvation to all people who would believe on him. So I pray if there are any hearts in here that have not, that they would trust you. That they would believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, what he has done and who he is just like the thief on the cross, because it's never too late until it's too late. I pray that you would move in our hearts, conform us to the image of your son, that we could see him one day in paradise, and he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. May we always look 
for ways to share who he is and what he's done with a lost and dying world. And it's in his great name that we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen.